Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quay. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud is generously sponsored by DigitalOcean. I would argue that every cloud platform out there biases for different things. Uh, Some bias for having every feature you could possibly want offered as a managed service at varying degrees of maturity. Others bias for, hey, we heard there's some money to be made in the cloud space. Uh, Can you give us some of it? DigitalOcean biases for neither. Uh, To me, they optimize for simplicity. I polled some friends of mine who are avid DigitalOcean supporters about why they're using it for various things, and they all said more or less the same thing. Other offerings have a bunch of shenanigans with root access and IP addresses, and DigitalOcean makes it all simple. In 60 seconds, you have root access to a Linux box with an IP. That's a direct quote, uh, albeit with profanity about other providers taken out. DigitalOcean also offers fixed price offerings. Uh, You always know what you're going to wind up paying this month, so you don't wind up having a minor heart issue when the bill comes in. Their services are also understandable without spending three months going to cloud school. You don't have to worry about going very deep to understand what you're doing. It's click button or make an API call, and you receive a cloud resource. They also include very understandable monitoring and alerting. And lastly, they're not exactly what I would call small time. Over 150,000 businesses are using them today. So go ahead and give them a try. Uh, visit do.co slash screaming, and they'll give you a free $100 credit to try it out. That's do.co slash screaming. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for their support of Screaming in the Cloud. Welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this time by Pete Cheslock, who runs technical operations at a company called ThreatStack. Welcome to the show, Pete. Thank you. I am uh, happy to be here, and I guess I guess somewhat happy I have to talk to you. Yeah, that's generally what we call a mixed bag. <laughs> so you and I first met at one of the many, many, many conferences that you and I both uh, more or less shove ourselves into, and we give a talk that at least is, in theory, vaguely related to what the conference purports to be about. Uh, I get up there and scream about Docker in weird ways. You've gotten up and told stories about a sunken shipwreck in Stockholm, uh, the Vasa, and somehow we managed to tie these ridiculous things back to, I guess, the feeling of the moment in the tech space. Yeah, I, I think it's most impressive that we're somehow able to um, talk about 17th century ships and uh, pooping unicorns and have them relate to uh, modern software engineering practices. <laughs> so what was also interesting to me is that you are sort of standing in two worlds in your professional life. On the one hand, you work at ThreatStack, which is a company that handles security, uh, monitoring, alerting, and remediation. Um, is it in AWS or is it uh, across multiple providers these days? So we run entirely on AWS. Um, we're we're really all in with Amazon. They're just they're so far ahead of everyone else. It seems kind of silly to to, to leverage other providers at this point. Um, but for our customer base, they can run really anywhere, which has uh, always been the compelling point of ThreatStack. You know, um, we we're monitoring things at the at the workload level. You know, the host level. Um, so you could be running. 
bare metal servers, uh, the pre-serverless uh, world, or uh, you know, you could be running in the cloud. You could have Azure. You could have um, you know systems really really anywhere, um, and and we're able to kind of capture that data and start giving you some anomaly detection and letting you know when things don't look quite right. Um, you know, hopefully trying to identify issues before they become real uh, big problems in your organization. You're in this somewhat strange space where you not only are a service provider to companies trying to figure out this whole cloud thing. But as you mentioned, you're also a heavy consumer of it, which puts you in something of a strange place. Because on the one hand, you're helping other people work through their various cloud challenges. And on the other, you have cloud challenges of your own. So it's one of those learn on one hand, teach on the other type of moments. Beyond that, you're also one of those people that I've when I was starting my own consulting business, you were on the short list of people that I reached out to to talk about interesting challenges in the AWS space, what you were seeing, how you dealt with them in the past. And I've got to say, it was, from my perspective, it was like going to cloud school. I appreciate that. I think I have been extremely fortunate and lucky to be really in the right place at the right time. I um, got into kind of Amazon and cloud services back in 2009 when... Um, you know, Amazon was still a fraction of what it is today. Um, I worked for a company called Sonian, um, who's now been long acquired by um, Barracuda, I want to say. Um, and what they were doing at the time was uh, email archiving, and their big thing was in the cloud, um, uh, leveraging S3 and leveraging um, really kind of those core pieces of Amazon technology. So we were extremely early into the cloud space to the point that we were one of the largest consumers of EBS and of S3 uh, in the early days of Amazon. Um, you know, the, the storage of all this email for, you know, kind of compliance reasons. So, uh, so yeah, so I've been pretty lucky to be part of Amazon from the really early days and, you know, kind of having to, to grow up as the cloud grew up means, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, open source technologies that came out of that company and a lot of businesses that came out of that company, um, you know, that have basically been designed as a way to help people, you know, with just how you manage this stuff in the cloud. It's, it's a much different model than, than, than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. You know, there's no more data centers. And uh, I always kind of joke, it's like the cloud security model is, uh, um, the old world is the hard candy shell and the soft nougaty center of network security where you you know block everything at the edge and and now we're we're in a totally different space where workloads run all over the place and you know your boundaries are no longer as well defined as they once were to some extent and admittedly I'm picking on Amazon here more so than the rest up just because they've been around far longer than their competitors have and it's the it feels like, to some extent, it's the common denominator that everyone can relate to, to some extent. So the bulk of my experience is there, yours is as well. But it feels to me like your business, which is helping companies improve their security posture in AWS, and mine, which is helping wade through the AWS bills, are both cottage industries built around cloud companies that in an ideal world, should not exist. Neither you nor I should have a business here if the providers were focusing on this from a different perspective. Agree? Disagree? You know, it's so interesting because I look at some of the things that Amazon announces and their features that they're adding. They're not really 
products that Amazon is announcing because they're just features because you have to tie them together to, to really make sense of them. Um, you know, Amazon has been dipping their toes in the security space uh, really for as long as ThreatSec has been around um, because customers are really trying to understand more of just you know, what's happening in my environment and you know, what's happening on my servers. One of the biggest challenges that we've actually had to deal with, and, and I would imagine a lot of other kind of cloud-based or cloud-native security companies deal with, is a lot of just kind of user education. My guess is it's a very similar challenge that you deal with as well, is a lot of times trying to um, you know, educate people of you know, why this is important or why this matters. Um, I guess... In the security space, it's a little bit easier only because of all of the breaches and um, different types of attacks and vulnerabilities that have popped up, I think are making people much more aware of security. But uh, a lot of times, um, you know, people just don't really know where to start, um, which really was the thing that really drove me to come to ThreatStack is um, it didn't it didn't seem like uh, there was really anyone in the market that was truly kind of solving this problem. Um, you know, even Amazon uh, has their very well-known um, shared uh, shared responsibility uh, model, where they essentially say, you know, we we have your security from the physical infrastructure and up, but uh, if it happens, you know, inside of your your account or virtual machine, you know, good luck, have fun. Um, I think they've been getting pushback on that, which is why you see you know services like CloudTrail. Um, and the new audit service they did a while ago. And I think there's Macy and um, a couple of other more security guard duty and a few of the other security services. But, um, you know, the, I guess the challenge that, that they have, I think that a lot of people have is just, you know, okay, here are some individual things, but how does that all tie together to actually let me know what's happening or what to do or am I getting better? Um, you know, I think that's the thing that, that, that we're trying to solve at ThreatSec, at least, is you know, telling companies, hey, here's how you should get better at being more secure or having a better security posture. Um, it it's, it's feels very similar to a lot of the conversations that were had five plus years ago around DevOps and automation and people trying to teach others of, hey, here's how you can improve how you build systems with these tools or that tools and things of that nature. The challenge with a lot of these things is that you see so many companies trying to do relatively complex things, and they're just figuring that the provider is going to handle the rest of it for you too. And I can't say that they're wrong to do this. Um, In the security front, for example, Amazon makes it extremely easy in some ways to shoot yourself in the foot from a security perspective. They're a couple clicks in the console away from... Having exposing uh, S3 stuff unnecessarily. I recently discovered a bunch of public RDS snapshots, people's databases just being stored publicly. And it winds up being a an area where, yes, in an ideal world, someone should be able to not do these things. They should have enough knowledge of the platform to avoid making the silly mistakes. On the other, there's so much surface area and so many things to be aware of that I'm afraid that's just not practical. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And that's kind of the inherent challenge of building on the cloud is one, it's it's still so new. There's not that many people who can really claim to have broad experience in managing it, um, at least over long periods of time. It just hasn't been around long enough. Um, and and 
we have interviewed countless people for just growing my team in infrastructure engineering. And the experience level of people running things on Amazon is, is pretty wildly different. You have everything from customers running uh, workloads, you know, kind of the Netflix way of fully immutable infrastructure and auto scaling systems. Um, and then you have other people who are kind of point and clicking through the Amazon UIs in order to provision systems and manage things. Um, sh- they might be using cloud, but there, there's little difference, I would say, between what those uh, engineers are doing and what we used to do 20 years ago, racking and stacking servers in a data center. Your point on, uh, um, that it's very easy to really shoot yourself in the foot with with Amazon or cloud services in general. Um, it's very poignant. We've heard a lot of uh, announcements and breaches due to you know S three buckets and things like that. Uh, and and I give Amazon a lot of credit. They're getting better about informing their customers when they make a bad decision, but it's usually after the fact. Um, you know, the other trick too, and something that I was pretty excited about a couple of years ago when we released um, some new features in our product is, you know, where we could start just continually scanning our customers' accounts against just best practices. Um, you know, things that were Amazon best practices or uh, CIS benchmarks. And we would just scan your account and we would scan it every few hours and, and we would just return back to you a score. It's like, hey, you're 78%, you know. And that would allow customers a way of just saying like, okay, this is where I'm at today. And, and now I at least know where my risk points are. And then, you know, kind of in that report, we could go back to that customer and say, all right, here's how you get to 80%. Here's, here's some of the things that you could, um, you know, make impact on. But I think that's the thing that at least if you're using kind of a raw provider, um, you miss out on that. There, there really isn't uh, anyone to hold your hand along the way. Uh, unless you know you're spending many many millions of dollars with Amazon, uh, I think it's a challenge to really get someone who can kind of help show you the way in kind of building out systems, you know, maybe securely or properly. There's, I think, there's just still a lot of education that's uh, that's required. Absolutely. I mean, going back to the S3 bucket issue that you just mentioned, there are valid use cases for having S3 buckets being publicly exposed. You want to serve web content from them, and for one reason or another, you don't want to put a a CDN like CloudFront in front of it. That's a reasonable use case. And a lot of automated tools will flag this, hey, red alarm, this bucket is publicly exposed. Yes, it's a bunch of static files that I want the world to be able to get. I know what I'm doing. And you fall into this trap. Uh, I mean, related to this, I have two AWS-related bits of art in my home office. The first is a map behind me that has a pin in it. It's a map of the world that has pins everywhere there's an AWS region or CloudFront edge location because I'm very sad. <laughs> and the other is a second monitor that has an ongoing real-time feed of open S3 buckets as their certificates get renewed. And it's fascinating to look at that one from time to time, and I spot-check it from uh, for, from time to time, and the vast majority are things that there's no problem in the world to expose publicly. It It's one of those things that just makes sense. So there's a there's a challenge in that sense where... And I, I don't envy your position because on the one hand, if a customer has an open S3 bucket, that is the sort of thing that can wind them in the headlines. On the other, only if it contains certain data. I mean, how do you tell the difference between the two? Macy, uh, the new Amazon service that launched at reInvent, is a neat idea, 
but I wound up running the numbers for what it costs. It's $5 per gigabyte of S3 data that it processes. I have customers that their first month's bill would be north of $100 million. <laughs> wow. At that point, you're higher. It doesn't matter what you do. It's not going to cost justify itself in that context. So we're still looking to find the right answers and find the path here. I think that building a scanning type tool in this space is a great step. And I think Threadstack does a commendable job of this, more so than most do. But we're still in the position of these tools lack judgment and they lack perspective to understand the greater context behind their findings. I think one of the challenges of kind of the uh, old guard of of security products in a lot of ways is it, it, a lot of it had to do with signature-based detection, right? I mean, just think of your old school antivirus were all signature-based. Um, you know, they were designed to uh, have a research team that would be testing and, and identifying signatures and pushing them down to your, your antivirus client and things like that. Um, as um, people ran bare metal systems and data centers, again, with that hard, crunchy exterior and the nougaty center of network security, um, they would, you know, do various endpoint detection on those servers. Um, but it was still pretty antiquated because you had servers whose lives would be uh, measured in years um, or, you know, God forbid, decades of, of uptime or availability. You know, in, in the in the cloud world, in the Amazon world, um, servers with uptimes measuring in um, you know seconds, minutes, days is far more common uh, for for a lot of companies. Um, so, one of the things that was really in the early days that that initial kind of product design was the kind of concept of behavior based detection, which is where we care less about individual events that are happening and and we can actually hear more about the behaviors that uh, a large number of events represent um, and so when Amazon uh, announced the CloudTrail service we thought that was great right you got a full API audit log of your CloudTrail data um, but of course in in true true to Amazon form that you turn it on and it dumps a bunch of data into s3 Um Analysis and alerting is is really on you, um, which meant a lot of customers never looked at it. You know, but what we're able to do is um, we were pretty excited by that because we already have an agent that runs on a host and is monitoring for every system call and login and file access. But in addition, um, we are consuming in your CloudTrail events, which show you know API access and things of that nature. And so we can start showing you context between host-based events and cloud-based events so that you can start getting more information about, you know, these series of events together have a lot more meaning. Like I see a DNS record changed while I see some systems provisioned or I see um, a host opens a connection outbound uh, to an IP address we've never seen before or, you know, show me the last or the top five IP addresses that I connect outbound to um, and try to correlate them to, you know, other systems being accessed. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of data that exists out there. Um, tying it all together is I think that's really the secret sauce, um, you know, to, to, to get the context like you're talking about so that you can tell, are these systems that got provisioned in, um, you know, Asia Pacific data center, are they mining Bitcoin? Or is that one of my engineering teams that's incorrectly configured something? You know, you would have to troll through quite a bit of data to, to make that, um, 
to get that answer faster. But if you were collecting data from all these different sources, you can get to the the answer much, much faster. And you know, if it is kind of malicious activity, you can you know take action on that pretty quickly. The challenge too is, and you alluded to this a few minutes ago. Uh, I have a client that is effectively a household name to some extent. And one thing that's interesting about working in their environment is as a consultant, this should come as no surprise to anyone. If it does, we have separate problems. I don't have full access to all of the things in their environment, nor should I. But whenever I run into one of the boundary areas of permissions when I'm doing work on their account and then API call fails, I get a message from a bot that tells me, hey, your user account just tried to do this thing. Was it you? Yes or no? If I say no, or if I ignore it, it escalates to their security team. If I say yes, it says, cool, thanks for letting me know. Confirm it on a two-factor code system, please. So that was fascinating to me, and it works surprisingly well, except when I'm not at my desk and I didn't notice that notification come through, and I come back and there's now a security person standing at my desk. That (laughs) tends to be something of a challenge. And this is a neat idea, and I love the concept. I have a vague idea of what they're spending for this type of system, and it's out of reach for most relatively small teams. You shouldn't have to hire an entire team of people to build out a bespoke and robust security operation. This should be something that grows with you. And there shouldn't be this level of, I guess, pay to play in the space. Now, I understand that your answer to this is, hey, that's why we have this thing. You can buy, buy, pay money to ThreatStack, receive security. (laughs) But the reality is it's more nuanced than that. And it's still one of those areas that I don't think that, especially at the lower end of the, um, I guess, of the budget and company scale size, that there's a great answer. Uh, Incidentally, my business suffers from this exact same problem as well. At hundreds of millions a year in spend, companies have teams that work on their analysis and uh, optimization of their cost. At very small scales, though, I can't do much for those companies. It's, okay, you're spending $40 a month on your Amazon bill and you want to get it down to 30 <laughs> Okay, my consulting engagement will pay for itself in only 200 short years. Awesome, let's get started. Is not really something that's going to be compelling to them. So, there is the there's a price umbrella in that regardless of what your market is in this space there's going to be some segment of the market that you're not able to accurately serve how do you i guess approach that philosophically so one of the things that um so yeah i, I definitely agree with you is that we we see companies of almost every type and, and size and um as we've grown i actually i don't i don't spend as much time with customers on the pre and post sales as i used to we got you know, many more people here than from when I started, you know, but we do, um, you know, I, I still do work with kind of sales and marketing and things like that to hear more about our companies uh, that are using us and their challenges. Um, you know, on one side, the thing that I always uh, advocate for is to have the very inexpensive option for people to get started with ThreatStack. And maybe that is I'm on Amazon and I just want to know. I want to scan all my Amazon resources and tell me how good I'm doing, right? And so, you know, that was a service that we ended up adding a few years ago where for a couple hundred bucks a month, you could scan a bunch of Amazon accounts and just say to yourself, cool, I am protected. 
you know, generally, it's like generally accepted, you know, cloud principles or whatever, not quite the accounting gap level, but you know, getting close. Um, and then, you know, as, as companies maturity model grows, how they respond to, um, you know, new applications, I think changes as well. Because um, when we started, we had, I started ThreatStack, there was eight of us. Um, we didn't have a dedicated security team. We all kind of did uh, our own fair share and tried to help out along the way. Um, but our, our security maturity internally actually improved uh, and, and matured uh, as a lot of the other parts of our business matured, where we have a dedicated security officer and a dedicated security team. Um, of course, it's interesting um, that we we also use ThreatStack to protect ThreatStack. We actually use our product and and use it uh, to help you know make us safer um, and 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 uh, you know help you know keep our customers' data um, you know safe from prying eyes. Um, but in a lot of ways, um, you know there are. There's things that people can do that can always improve their security posture. And, and a line that we often say around here is kind of, and it's been said by others, and I have no idea who came up with it, but it is, you know, good operations is good security. Is having a, a good operational process means you are inherently more secure. Um, you know, updating system, patching systems, having good access control policies. Um, tracking changes, maybe using fancy things like source control or building and provisioning systems using tools like, you know, Puppet and Chef, um, or monitoring your systems and the health of the systems with time series databases and things like that. Um, we recently wrote an ebook to help SaaS companies understand how to improve their security. And as I read through it, so much of it was like, this is the exact same things you should do if you are any other business. But really, these are the, these are the same steps that every company should take just to improve their operational expertise. Um, of course, as you grow, you start requiring kind of independent teams um, to start focusing on things. Um, I will say that the open source world around Kind of capturing and storing uh, events coming off of systems um, has matured dramatically, right? You can provision a gray log implementation or an elk stack and start consuming in audit events off of your servers if you really want to know what's going on or um, to use those to consume CloudTrail uh, events off of your Amazon account. Whereas 10 years ago, that was a lot harder to do. So um, I guess I would say I'm hopeful for the future that there are places in which people can get started if they want some information. Um, but of course, over time, and I, and I say this as someone who uses a lot of hosted services, is that you know eventually I get to the point where I can't provide that service um, internally better than some third-party provider. Um, hiring people is so challenging. You know What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to pay for that. I'm going to buy my way out of this problem. Because hiring a team to go and build and manage that is going to be much more uh, expensive and time-consuming than just going to a provider who is arguably an expert in that space, whether it's monitoring or two-factor authentication management or single sign-on or, or whatever. Really, um, you know, that's I guess the one beauty of of the world we live in, right? Is everyone can there are providers out there, you know, like Amazon, who are experts in running managing systems. So I can't run bare metal systems better than Amazon. So why, why bother? Like, let's leverage them instead. Right. Part of the challenge too, with the 
I guess, pace of innovation, the number of new services that they release, it seems like talking about security in a cloud context or billing in a cloud context, these seem like safe areas to be a service provider around because we've been down this road collectively enough that these are not new concepts. If you've been involved with it for a while, you know where the sharp edges are and you've seen what happens when people get it disastrously and or hilariously wrong. Whereas with some of the new offerings that wind up being dropped out almost on a whim, you find that there are stories where it's difficult to have any experience with these things. Amazon released this new service two weeks ago, and now our company is going to be a service provider around that one thing. On the one hand, okay, but you're effectively two weeks ahead of the rest of the industry at most on this. And two, Amazon doesn't hold still. When a new service tends to come out, a lot of the problems with it on launch day tend to disappear or be significantly improved over the following months. So to some extent, there's a challenge, at least for people looking for new and emerging markets, for people who are trying to figure out a niche in this space to position themselves in. It's tempting on some level to look at some new AWS service that just came out. Terrific. Great. You jump on that. You offer a consultancy around it. You build up a whole series of websites. You build out a bunch of white papers. You have business cards printed, et cetera, et cetera. And then find out that service wasn't real. It was something I tweeted about as a joke because I thought it would be funny. (laughs) There's not enough, I guess, validation in the market as to what things are going to be a hit and what things aren't. So I do feel for people who are in the process of starting up consultancies to show other folks the way around some of these things, I'm just worried that it may be premature. That said, I'm an old school ops person. I tend to be extremely conservative with respect to things that earn money. Um, I tend to be one of the last people you'll know who will tr- switch to a new file system, who will try a new operating system. Or, And at this point, I can't really imagine what picking up all of my personal stuff and moving it to another cloud provider would even begin to look like. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest joke or scam or whatever you want to call it is the concept of vendor lock-in. If I, every time someone says, uh, we can't use something on Amazon because of vendor lock-in, I just laugh because, oh, we can't store 10 petabytes of data on S3 because of vendor lock-in. If you want that data off, you can get it anytime. Uh, pretty sure that's what Dropbox did. They moved off way more data than that. Um, they had no issue with vendor lock-in. So at the end of the day, you know, you have to, uh, I guess, understand the choices you make when you start building your systems in these various places. I think the biggest, uh, the thing on Amazon I always find to be funny is, you know, everything, and, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but every service they've ever announced and launched, I'm pretty sure still runs. Um, even services of which I'm sure if you talk to an Amazon person over drinks, they would tell you, you should never, ever use that service. Simple TV. They're playing your song. Simple TV. Wow. How did I know you'd say simple TV? Cause it's the only one they've done that to. Yeah. <laughs> so in some ways, when they announce a new service, um, again, it's, it's not really a, it's, 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 it's a, it's a feature. It's not a product. So it's, it's just another feature that you can leverage. You have to tie it in together to the rest of the things. Um, and in a lot of ways, when they announce something, it's, it's, it's pretty minimal, right? It's that true minimal viable product. Um, you know, the very first version of Lambda, um, people were excited because it was interesting. Um, in what you could do with it, but 
you know, no one was en masse moving to serverless. Now it's been a few years and there's more support for it, but no one is still en masse moving to serverless. Like it, it has its place and its function and it's interesting. But um, you know, I think the next big place where we're going to see that is, is honestly in, in the containerization and Kubernetes world, Docker is nothing new. Containers are nothing new. Um, but the pervasiveness of Kubernetes is what's new. Um, I think that's going to be the big, the big challenge for really everything within operations, far more than people think serverless is going to take over all of our jobs. I think, if anything, what does the role of operations look like in a Kubernetes world? Um, and, and my argument is it's going to look like exactly how operations should look, which is operations is a, a service organization that builds tools to enable other teams to do what they need to do. And if an operations team, and, and that's pretty much the team I have built out here at ThreatStack, our team builds out the tools and, and infrastructure to that support other teams to get their job done. And so in my mind, I... I await the, our, our Kubernetes Lord and Savior um, that we can standardize upon, become very good at managing that platform and really letting the engineers use it and leverage it for, for application deployments and putting more ownership and accountability on them to, to get to you know, where they need and um, to, you know, kind of do their job effectively. Um, and of course, the challenge is going to be is, is in this new world is, well, how do you monitor it and how do you determine if it's you know, acting correctly and is it secure? And what does security even mean in Kubernetes um, and in the Dockerized container world? Um, you know, if at the very least, it, it keeps us all employed. You know, for for another five or ten years while we try to figure out what it all means. I think you're right. I think that it's it moves very quickly. I think that this is an emerging space, and I think that there are going to be sharp edges for a long time. I think a lot of the excitement around new products and services that get released is not that it's fully baked. It didn't spring fully formed from the forehead of some god-like software engineer. It It's a minimum viable product, as you said. It's something that winds up serving as a glimpse of what it could grow into. And sometimes those things come to fruition and sometimes they don't. I mean, in the early days, EC2 was a living nightmare to work with. Now it's click button, receive server. Yeah, the early days. Oh my, I just remember so many bugs running uh, early versions of Ubuntu on Amazon. Just like they'd work great until they didn't. Like Ubuntu's 10.04, like you just couldn't run it. So you then you had to run, uh, (laughs) worst thing ever, you had to run a non-LTS release that in six months later would um, no longer get security updates because the one that did get security updates uh, didn't function. (laughs) Exactly. And that's part of the challenge too, is this is hard stuff. It's easy to sit here in my comfortable home office where if with my personal Amazon bill of $7 a month and cast stones at some of these large companies and the cloud providers themselves for the way they do things. But come to find out, people like me are generally not their target market for a lot of these things. They look for people who are actually good at things and doing exciting things and throwing large piles of money into the space. I'm not that. I'm more or less a freeloader on a lot of these companies that are doing things that actually make money. And it helps at times to remember that. On the other, by doing weird off-the-wall things, it starts to give companies a glimpse of what's possible. So I think that to some extent, 
we're also seeing cloud reduce the cycle time of what it takes to have an off-the-wall idea come to fruition. I think that's really the biggest part is the the time and effort it takes to to t- bring a product to market is far lower than ever was. And honestly, when I think about things like serverless, that's where serverless, where you can MVP an idea uh, in, in, in functions. Um, now granted, you get scaled to some huge amount of requests on it. I have no idea. And I'd love to talk to someone who has, but, um, I think it's a phenomenal place to test out new ideas at a very low cost. Um, you know, you don't have to go buy servers and data center space and all the other stuff in the threat stack world. I mean, we've, we've been scaling on Amazon for the past four years now, um, starting with, you know, a dozen servers somewhere. And now we're running significantly more than that. Um, the, the thing that I love most about it is they're, they're innovating so fast that, um, usually around the time I'm ready for that feature to come out, like cross region VPC peering, which was announced. Uh, but, 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 it's inter region VPC peering, please. The nomenclature matters. Oh, yeah, I guess. I've never been good with the, uh, the English, uh, the English language. So <laughs> the English language as provided by Amazon. <laughs> you know, the next big one that's super interesting to me is honestly their hosted Kubernetes service. Um, also their bare metal service. I mean, they're not the first one to do bare metals servers there's and there's people that do it way better than they do but what's interesting it's just another instance size you can run that inside of an auto scaling group and now i say to myself well shoot uh if i could run the kubernetes service and use you know the bare metal service and get really full access to these hosts inside of the primitives of amazon iam roles and um you know, KMS and all of the, the features that you get with a normal EC2 instance, like that's actually what the game changer is. It's not bare metal. It's what it, what it allows you to do it in an existing infrastructure. Um, and I think that's what Amazon is always very good at is there, this, this whole thing is just an iteration. You know, they are iterating upon things that they did years ago, trying to hopefully provide solutions for people's problems you know, in running systems. Um, and honestly, they, they do a great job of it. I've been using it from very nearly the beginning. And uh, at a time, uh, I worked for a company where we were deploying into multi-clouds. And uh, even then, the, the, the next closest cloud might be something like an Azure or maybe Google. But even then, there's still a far cry from what uh, many businesses require out of a, out of a provider. Um, and so... You know, I, I continue to be all in on Amazon uh, for all of its warts and all of its pain. Um, but I also, uh, I've been in the, in the industry long enough that I don't want to rack servers anymore. And I don't have to work with my finance team to have to capitalize millions of dollars of, of physical boxes that may not get deployed for six months. Um, you know, I just, I want to go provision some systems or, um, you know, help teams actually provide a product to a customer and not have to think about you know, all that other complexity. I could not agree with you more. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before we go, if people want to hear other pearls of your sage wisdom, where can they find you? Um, that is a great question. Um, I, I have yet to actually uh, determine if I'm going to be actually attending any conferences this year, but I imagine uh, I will make it to at least one or two DevOps days because they're just great events that I love to uh, be a part of. But um, you know, for for anyone that wants to 
check out any of the talks that we spoke about today, like the VASA, um, you can go to my website, uh, pete.wtf, um, which uh, is on wonderful Amazon. Uh, thank you for their hosting. And uh, I got a link on there. You can check out my talks. I usually put them all online just so that I can save them from, from my own recollection. Um, but uh, yeah, I think my my hope is uh, is to essentially uh, share the story this year about how how did how do we do the DevOps at ThreatStack? I mean, we went from zero to a very large number of systems and people in scale. You know, I feel like we're doing DevOps the way it was meant to be done. So, um, you know, hopefully, uh, once uh, once I actually submit some proposals, I'll be able to tell that story at uh, at some events this year. <laughs> I look forward to hearing them. Uh, thank you for joining me once again. I'm Corey Quinn. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold. 